This week, I'm bringing a bonus episode out of the Patreon vault and sharing it with everybody. If you like what you hear, jump on over to my website, theexplorespodcast.com, and click on Become a Patron. For as little as a dollar a month, you'll help me keep making The Explores and get access to exclusive bonus episodes just like this one. Now, on with the show. Dear patrons, I'm so glad you're here. In episode four on sex in Victorian America, we briefly met some fascinating ladies that I think we should get to know a little better. Both were infamous self-made madams, but of a very different kind. One was a queen of Washington's elite brothels who built an empire by seducing influential men. The other was a madam doctor, who even without any medical training became rather infamous for treating lady problems, specifically by arguing that women should have the right to choose whether they had babies or not. Yes, we're diving right into prostitution, contraception, and abortion. So tighten your stays, let's go traveling. Let's start in 1997. I know, it's a terrible place to start. I was in seventh grade, strapless shirts were in, and I was wearing an eye patch. Like the pirate kind, but way less cool. Although mostly, I was taking it off and wandering around the halls without it, all cross-eyed, banging into locker doors while people tried not to mock me. So many pirate jokes. Anyway. So in 1997, George Bush Jr. signed a bill to get the Smithsonian's Museum of the American Indian built. They churned up some earth in a prime spot on the National Mall and found something they didn't expect there. The remains of a building with lots of artifacts from another place and time. That time was the mid-19th century, and that building belonged to a woman the excavation team dubbed the Madam on the Mall. That Madam's name was Mary Ann Hall. For 40 years, she ran one of D.C.'s most exclusive houses of ill repute, right there next to the Capitol building. But how did she end up there, in such a prestigious part of our nation's capital? Who was this woman? We don't know a lot about Marianne's early life. It is, appropriately, veiled in secrecy. We think she was born somewhere in the 18-teens, in the Capitol itself. She was one of many children, and probably from a family without a lot of money to get by on. By her early 20s, she was making her way as a soiled dove for hire. She must have done all right, because in 1840, she had enough cash to buy herself a swampy plot of land around what would one day become the National Mall. Though the Washington of yesteryear wasn't quite as stately as it is today. Back then, very few streets were paved, The grand monuments were still going up, and land was being sold off piecemeal. The mall wasn't actually a green at all, but a long, stinky canal called the Washington Canal. But it was still in the heart of the city's action. By the 1860s, this was a rough-and-tumble neighborhood packed full of working-class families and some less savory elements. But out of these swampy ashes, Mary built a three-story shrine of elegant sauciness. Body houses, or public houses, were the lower-class establishments. 
A survey by the provost marshal in 1864 and 65 classed the city's brothels, ranging from first, second, third, low, and very low. Mary Ann's was the creme de la creme, a parlor house or private brothel. Mary Ann Hall had 18 inmates, which was more than the rest in the survey year. How do we know it was fancy? During the excavation, the 1997 team found thousands of champagne corks in Mary's establishment. Specifically, Piper Heidzik French champagne, which you can still get in our century. If someone wants to send me some, I'd be down. She also offered her clients expensive meats like beef and pork, as well as exotic delicacies like Brazil nuts and coconut. The 19th century gentleman was probably not as familiar with coconut water as we are. Instead of using crockery made of pearlware and whiteware, she used ironstone and porcelain. Very stylish and much more expensive. Though the excavation turned up very little by way of glasses or tobacco remnants, I'm hoping that means that Marianne, A, banned smoking from her establishment, and B, just said everybody drinks straight out of the bottle. Party time! The Cypriot ladies would have lived full-time at this fancy three-story building on Maryland Avenue. This was probably a good thing for them, as they were enjoying a more varied diet than most and better living than many of the girls around them. And Marianne Hall staffed both white and black women in her establishment, which is pretty unusual in a place and time when most such houses were strictly segregated and the city still had a substantial enslaved population. It's hard to say what those black women experienced, but I hope they were dripping in diamonds and eating many succulent meats. She even employed her sister, Elizabeth, sharing the love. At the beginning of the Civil War, Girl had about 18,000 to her name. So, more than 500,000 in today's money. Damn! There's a lot we don't know about Marianne Halls, but there's a lot we can infer. The place was mighty fine featuring such luxuries as Belgian carpets, oil paintings, feather pillows. They even had an icebox. So she wasn't catering to the everyday schmo. She served middle and upper-class clientele. She didn't keep a list of her clients, at least not one that's been found, unfortunately, but it's highly likely they were influential people. As we talked about in episode four, America was still figuring out how to define and deal with prostitution in the mid-19th century. But during the war, when the city's population was bursting at the seams and filling with soldiers, it became very clear very quickly that the number of body houses and very visible streetwalkers was getting a little bit out of control. In 1864, one newspaper put the number at 5,000 prostitutes just in the city proper. So the government, afraid about security breaches and spies and such, created the Metropolitan Police Department, the city's first regular federal police force. In 1862, the provost marshal laid down the gauntlet with General Order No. 17, encouraging cops to arrest public women or anyone acting out on the street. Those convicted would pay a fine, which they'd usually get back after a few months of good behavior but they could also spend up to 90 days in a workhouse. Most of the 75 women arrested under this order weren't even taken in for prostitution, but for being drunk, loitering, and being too rowdy. One African-American lady prostitute was arrested and fined $5 for walking with a white man. 
So it seems like the police force was primarily concerned with women being loud on the street and also racism. Cool. But by 1863, the papers were still saying Vice was rife in places like Hooker's Division. The Evening Star reported, There are at present more houses of this character by ten times in the city than have ever existed here before, and loose characters can now be counted by the thousands. But they didn't seem overly concerned about Marianne Hall's house. It was one of what was called the Upper Ten, the most classy establishments and the most discreet. With a wink and a bit of a nod, the police would look away from such high-class, relatively quiet places. They had bigger fish to fry. I imagine that these gentlemen were also taking bribes, and maybe enjoying the merchandise. But it's not hard to imagine that it's also because Marianne had influence with some of the people in power. One expose that would come out years later certainly claimed the power such prostitutes had in Washington. Apparently, as they hung over the Senate balcony, it said, They become objects of unctuous admiration, displaying to excellent advantage their gorgeous apparel, with half-revealing monuments of maternity peeping over brilliant bodices, and arms dressed in rouge that helps nature amazingly. But Mariah Kaufman, the madam of a lower-class brothel, took umbrage to such unfair dealings when she was arrested in 1863. She didn't like when indictments against such parties as Mary Hall, Sarah Austin, and others who keep the upper ten style of houses of the class are not called up. She had reason to be mad. By 1864, Mary Hall had perhaps the most prosperous brothel in the city, worth four times its pre-war value. Newspaper coverage of Mariah's comments brought some unwanted attention. Marianne's place was raided on January 18, 1864. She was indicted in the D.C. Circuit Court with keeping a body house and disorderly conduct. Washington's Evening Star described her turning up at the police station in a suit of virtuous black. For her trial, she hired attorney Joseph H. Bradley Sr., who would go on, years later, to defend one of the men accused of assassinating President Lincoln. So, probably not a cheap guy to hire. For evidence against her, the police cited things like horse-drawn carriages pulling up at all hours, full of men. Also, every time the police stopped by, it seemed that everyone was behaving like a wedding party was going on, champagne was being handed around. She was found guilty and fined $2,000. That's about $60,000 in today's money, but that didn't slow her down much. But this madam was more than a scandalous news item. She was one of Washington's first female landowners, a successful and savvy businesswoman, and a very wealthy one on her own terms. After the war, things continued to go well for her. When she handed the reins of the business off to her sister, she was in her 50s and very rich. That's when she rented out part of her property to the Washington Dispensary for Women and Children a women's health clinic run by female doctors. How good is that? When Marianne died in 1886, the Evening Star said this about her, With integrity unquestioned, a heart ever open to appeals of distress, a charity that was boundless, she is gone. But her memory will be kept green by many who knew her sterling worth. Monetarily, that worth was substantial. 
When she died, her estate was valued at over $87,000. In today's money, that's in the ballpark of $2.3 million. Mary, her sister, and their mom are all buried in Washington's Congressional Cemetery, with the largest monument in the area, very close to FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, who's probably pretty pissed that a harlot's gravestone is bigger than his. If you're a 19th century girl and you find yourself in the family way and don't want to be, there aren't many people you can turn to. But you can order a little something by mail. You just have to know the right word search. French is a good indication that you're getting somewhere. Also, anything that says it will remove obstructions or help ease private difficulties. But if you see one particular name in the paper, you know you've found it. That name is Madame Restel. Anne Trow, our Madame's real name, was born in England in 1812. She wasn't born into a well-to-do family, which means much like Marianne Hall, and by age 15, she was making ends meet as a maid. By 16, she'd married a tailor, Henry Summers, and eventually they had a daughter named Caroline. In 1831, they moved from England to New York City, where Henry unhelpfully died within months of their arriving there. Anne had to support herself, which she did with seamstress work. Remember what we said about the reputation of seamstresses. But at least it was something she could do at home, since this single mom also had a child to take care of and no family to help with babysitting. Anne was getting by, but she wasn't satisfied with this arrangement. Enter 27-year-old Charles Lohman, a printer with the New York Herald and a pretty well-educated and debonair dude. He was also pretty woke because he and some of his cronies were very into things like free thought and free love. The idea that sexuality wasn't necessarily bad and that women had important thoughts and should be allowed to express them. Damn straight! They were also busy printing pamphlets about contraception and population control. My. And though Anne had no formal experience with doctoring, her new beau encouraged her interest in pursuing it. I'm not sure what drove her in this direction, but she decided to venture into patent medicine. And when she did, she pulled a truly 19th century trick, invented herself a resume. The new story went that she was trained as a midwife in Europe with her grandma, who was herself quite a popular doctor, by the name of Restel. Her first ad ran in the New York Sun in 1839. I mentioned it in episode 4, but it's worth going over here in full. To married women. Is it not but too well known that the families of the married often increase beyond what the happiness of those who give them birth would dictate? Is it moral for parents to increase their families, regardless of consequences to themselves or the well-being of their offspring, when a simple, easy, healthy, and certain remedy is within our control? The advertiser, feeling the importance of this subject and estimating the vast benefit resulting to thousands by the adoption of means prescribed by her, has opened an office where married females can obtain the desired information. Note that she doesn't say single women, or young women, or fallen women. She says married women, which tells you something about the 19th century. And the people answered, coming to see her at her office on Greenwich Street. 
Greenwich? Greenwich. Wait. If she wasn't free, never fear. You could get preventative powder, $5, or female monthly pills, $1 a piece, by mail. Much like Lydia Pinkham, who became very famous selling her herbal remedies for female pains and problems, these ladies just commercialized the kinds of home remedies that women had been making for each other forever. Though how effective they were, or how healthy they were, is hard to say. In a time when we didn't understand much about how reproduction even worked, most of them were essentially poison. So violent that they flushed a lady's system, potentially achieving her aim, but probably making her feel quite sick in the process. Which, given her lack of discernible training, is maybe worrying. But given the fact that doctors at this time didn't have all that much training, New York was overcrowded, and they knew next to nothing about women's lady parts, well, already then. Madame Restel was one of the irregulars we talked about in episode two. A self-taught lady doctor who tended to advertise in the papers and catered specifically to women. Her potions must not have been totally terrible because her popularity skyrocketed. So much so that imitators, also with fake-sounding French names, sold knockoff potions. In other words, she knew her stuff. I also enjoy the fact that she moderated the price of her wares depending on a lady's means. $20 if you were poor, $100 if you were rich. Still not cheap, for sure. This is not a charity operation, but for a poor girl, perhaps manageable. Keep in mind that at this time, people looked at abortion very differently than we do. At the time when Madame Restel started practicing, a woman wasn't even really considered pregnant, officially, until the third or fourth month when she could actually feel the baby moving around in there. That's the point at which it was considered to have a soul. Any abortive surgery performed before that point wasn't considered abortion. In fact, it was legal. Madame Restel tried to ascertain where a woman was in her process before she offered any treatment. Not doing so, and helping a woman abort after the quickening, would result in a charge of manslaughter. I want to think that Madame Restel was earnest in her offerings, and that she got into this line of work mostly out of goodness, just like I want to believe that our other Madame, Marianne, always treated her ladies with the utmost respect and split her money with them equally. But truth to tell, these were both businesswomen, in the business of staying in business. So as Madame Restel's practice grew, she found ways to expand it. She had a hospital where women could come and have their babies in secret. For a fee, she'd even find that baby a happy home. Good business, and, hopefully, good practice. It's interesting to me that she wasn't targeting single women, or prostitutes, or anyone who might be considered naturally degenerate. She was primarily targeting married women, those who were afraid of the risks of having too many babies too fast, or who just couldn't afford them, or who worried about their health in a time when having babies still wasn't altogether safe. In a time when contraception options were few, and many of them were ineffective, and most women married quite young and were expected to bear children ASAP, it isn't hard to imagine why this was quite a large audience. By the late 1850s, some 20% of women are having abortions, which seems shocking to us now, yes. But with so high a percentage, in a society that didn't give women many rights or much of a safety net, 
there must have been pretty pressing reasons. Madame Restell landed in the press and in the courtroom in 1840, when a past patient dying of tuberculosis confessed a troubling story to her husband. That story was that Mariah Purdy had gone to Madame Restell because she just didn't want to have another child. The one she already had was only 10 months old, and she wasn't ready for another one. This 21-year-old was given a yellow liquid, full of tansy and turpentine, for $1. But after taking a few doses, this young woman got worried. She felt terrible. No shit, Mariah! She went back to the madam, who said a painless $20 operation should do the trick. After a consult in a darkened room with the madam and a male doctor, who made sure she hadn't reached the quickening, everything was done and she went home. But Mariah was convinced the operation was what caused her TB, so they went and arrested Madame Restell. There was, unsurprisingly, a huge public firestorm. The press called the Madame many things, including the monster in human shape and a hag of misery. She was a threat to everything sacred, marriage, motherhood, sexuality. She was luring women into thinking they could abort without thought or consequence, they said. She decided to defend herself in court. Part of her approach was to put an ad in the paper, daring anyone to come forward who could prove her remedies were harmful. In fact, she offered them 100 bucks to do so. I cannot conceive how men who are husbands, brothers, or fathers can give utterance to an idea so intrinsically base and infamous that their wives, their sisters, or their daughters want but the opportunity and facility to be vicious. And if they are not so, it is not from an innate principle of virtue, but from fear. What is female virtue, then? A mere thing of circumstance and occasion? She was found guilty, but then retried because a deathbed confession wasn't considered admissible evidence. She was let off and started opening branches of her operation in other cities. She was on the rise again. But the law started shifting in 1845 in New York, making it illegal to provide abortions or abortive potions at any stage of pregnancy, promising fines and prison time to the women who provided them and sought them. And, as the national public face of abortion, public furor tended to center around Madame Restell. A riot in 1846 sent a mob chanting outside her house with charming slogans like these, Hangin's too good for her, and This house is built on baby skulls! They were always accusing her of whatever crimes happened to surface including the abortion that provided the real-life inspiration for Edgar Allan Poe's The Mystery of Mary Rogett. But eventually, she found herself in real trouble in 1847, when a woman came to see her. She was too far along for a procedure, the madam said, but the woman's lover insisted, over and over, until she agreed. But then afterward, the woman went to another doctor over the pain of it, and he reported what he suspected had happened to her. Madame Restell was arrested for second-degree manslaughter. The press absolutely worked over every gory, sexy detail of this trial and were unwavering in their vitriol over the madam. She served a year at Blackwell's prison, the same place our friend William Sanger conducted his study of prostitutes. When she got out, she said she was done with surgeries, just pills for her, thank you, and her boarding house. 
she was free of the clink and was left alone for a while. She had money and some friends in high places, which helped. She, like our other madam, was infamous and had quite a lot of money, and that came with both awe and loathing. But ultimately, she couldn't shake off her bad reputation. It followed her around like a bad smell. It didn't help that she was now a wealthy woman on the back of her business, which incensed the growing number of moral reformers in the city. She had a fancy carriage, furs, a big fancy brownstone. The mayor even officiated her daughter's wedding. But she was infamous more than she was beloved. Her house was even in several guidebooks for New York visitors, labeled as the place to see the wickedest woman in New York. But something even wickeder was this way coming. A man named Anthony Comstock. By the 1870s, this former Civil War soldier was on an absolute rampage about American sin. Specifically, he drove something called the Comstock Law. Narcissist much? That made it illegal to see or distribute any material considered obscene by mail. And guess who got to choose what obscene meant? Anthony Comstock. So all of those charming yellow-bound books we enjoyed in episode 4. And yes, ladies, this also covers all contraception methods. Even pointing someone in the direction of such information threatened years in jail and hefty fines. But the lovely, very stab-worthy Comstock didn't stop there. He wanted to personally take down everyone he saw as major offenders. He did this to Madame Restelle by going to her office, claiming to be a married fellow worried about his wife's health, giving her a sob story about how his wife was sick and he was worried about her having any more children. She could help him, she said, and she gave him some pills. Not long after, he had her arrested. She defended herself again, talking mad smack about Mr. Comstock. He's in this nasty detective business. There are a number of little doctors who are in the same business behind him. They think if they can get me in trouble and out of the way, they can make a fortune. On April Fool's Day, 1878, at the age of 67, on the day of her trial, her maid found her in the bathroom with her throat slit. In the tub, wearing all of her jewels, she committed suicide. The Times reported it as a fit ending to an odious career. When Comstock found out, he jotted down the following. A bloody ending to a bloody life. I don't totally know how I feel about this, madam. On one hand, she was probably inflicting pain on certain women and making money doing it. But on the other, I believe that she was doing it mostly because she wanted to help those women, to be there for them in ways others weren't. Is it fair that Marianne died praised and admired despite her controversial career, while Madame Restelle died in a hail of criticism and taunts? I don't know, but I do feel badly that this woman left this world under such a cloud of darkness. With the rise of guys like Comstock, moralistic waves really cracked down on regulating sex-related issues. Prostitution, abortion, and access to health education for women was driven underground and into the shadows, thus becoming harder to find, and making women's health much more dangerous. And whatever your feelings might be about such issues, they dampened conversation about sex and everything around it for women. And I, for one, say a big thumbs down to that. 
So what do we make of these two very different lives? One of our madams died a rich woman and peaceful. Another died rich, but in a cloud of scandal. They were involved in the same line of work, though, if you think about it. Discreetly dealing in sex-related matters, sometimes in public. For better or for worse, these women were strong women. Ladies who made their own way to wealth in a time when it was a very hard thing to do. And for that, I wave my bra in the direction of their memories, as controversial as these ladies might have been. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you have any questions or suggestions for me, just let me know at theexplorespodcast.com. For lots of images to go along with this bonus feature, come find me on Instagram at theexplorespodcast. Hit me up on Twitter at theexplorespod or Facebook at the Explores Podcast. Until next time.